to Acts chapter 19. Men, come in. We're going to be in Acts um, 19. We're going to read verse 23 and then have our prayer together. And get into our main lesson. It's certainly good to be together. I know you're enjoying the springtime weather. And especially it's good to be with church family. Acts 19.23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. We're going to talk about riots, one particular riot uh, tonight. Before we get to this, let's pray together. Holy Father, we bow before <coughs> your throne with hearts of thanksgiving. Realizing, Father, and understanding that from your mighty hand comes all blessings. Thank you, Lord, for life itself. and Thank you, Father, for everything that we enjoy. Thank you for everything that helps us to grow. Lord, we're thankful for our church family that meets here. Lord, we pray your blessing as we seek to study your word. Among those, Father, who are with us, we are missing several. Lord, we ask your blessing. Lord, we pray for each member who may be hurting in one way or another. We pray for those that are recovering from sicknesses. We lift up your, your holy throne, Father, in your high and holy name, and also want to bring Keith before you, Lord, as we have been doing. Pray your blessing upon him. Pray that the very things that are being done will be exactly, exactly what he needs. We pray, Father, that you would watch over him. Help him and Deneen and the whole family. Lord, we're mindful of others who have been traveling, and who have lost loved ones. We pray, Father, that each family will, will be under your loving care. Gracious Lord, we have a long list of those who have struggles every day, and we're thankful for their faith. We pray that you would enrich them, Father, give them the help they need, but especially that you would help them to lean upon thee. Lord, we're most grateful for your great love. We're thankful, Father, for our Lord Jesus. We're thankful, Father, to be walking, to be able to walk in his steps. We fail at this, Lord pray that you would help us, help us to be quick to repent, help us, Lord, to see the error of our ways, help us, Father, to want to please you above all things. Lord, we pray that 
as we study that you would give us the insights we need. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be the servants that you would have us to be. In Jesus' name. So again, back to Acts 19, 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way. The way refers to those who were following Jesus, as you know. Let your eyes go over to Acts 19 in verse 9. Paul is teaching in the synagogue but some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. The way. You see, we are in the way. I'm in the way, the bright and shining way. The way of following Jesus, the way of Scripture. When Saul of Tarsus was still Saul of Tarsus in his sin, he was persecuting the way, according to Acts 9, verse 2. So a great disturbance arose because of the way. The way. So here we are, we're in the city of Ephesus in Acts 19. And so let's make our way back to the text. Let's kind of do a, a circle. Let's, let's take a little journey and we'll come right back to Acts 19. But, but if you're taking notes, first think about the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus. It's, it's way over away from Jerusalem as Paul travels. And you can look in your maps, uh, in your Bible, and you keep going toward uh, probably the left side of your map. You're heading toward Rome, but you come onto Asia and you start seeing these seaports and cities situated on the sea. And um, Ephesus is one of those seaports. And then from Ephesus, you go across another body of water, and you come to Thessalonica and Berea, and then on across another body of water, you come to Rome, and from there, Spain. But Ephesus is a main um, travel route, main commerce route. Uh, it's a seaport area. A lot of business come through uh, Ephesus. Okay, and this is one of the major cities of the early first century. It also was a magnet because of its location. It was a magnet for all kinds of influences. You can imagine it yourself. A seaman, salesman, soldiers, politicians, all sorts of people, uh, people with nothing else to do, traveling through, and everybody has their influence, and all these influences were gathering uh, in Ephesus. So think about the city of Ephesus. We're in Acts 19. But think about the city of Ephesus uh, to begin with. And then let's think about the church. The church in Ephesus. In your Bibles, look over to Acts uh, 18. And notice Paul on his second missionary journey. Acts 18 and verse 19. Okay, he's been in Corinth. And so verse 19 of Acts 18 says, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself uh, went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So this is the, 
beginnings of the church uh, in Ephesus. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return. I'll be back. I'll be back. I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Okay. Notice verse 22 of Acts 18. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Okay. So this little notation tells us that his second missionary journey ended. You see Acts 13, they were sent from the church of Antioch. Acts 14, 27, they're back at the church of Antioch to report. Now here at the end of of the second missionary journey, come, they've come back to Antioch again. But on his third missionary journey, going into Acts 19, verse 1, you see that Paul returns to Ephesus like he said he would do. Okay. And this time in Ephesus, he's going to stay there uh, a little over two years, going on three years. Notice in Acts 19, Verses 8 through 10, notice in Acts, 18, Acts 19, verse 8, that he entered a synagogue and he, he did that work for, for three months. Okay. But then they kind of ran him out of there and he went into the school of Tyrannus, Acts 19, verse 9, and he continued doing this, verse 10, for two years. Two years. The school of Tyrannus was simply a place that gave him an opening to be able to teach the gospel on a daily basis. Okay. And so this is the beginnings of the church in Ephesus. You've got the city of Ephesus and then the church in Ephesus. And then let's think about the main religion in Ephesus, which was what? Say it loud. What's the main religion in Ephesus? The temple of who? Yeah, the temple of Diana. Now, Diana is the Latin Roman name, and the Greek name for this temple is Artemis. This comes, comes over in different ways. So if you see Diana, that's the Roman name. If you see Artemis in your Bible, then that's the Greek name. But it's this, this temple of Diana okay, in the city of Ephesus. Let's think about this temple. Think about this temple. And I won't belabor this because you can look these things up yourself. We have our tools really handy nowadays, uh, probably right there on your phone, but certainly uh, close to a computer. But the dimensions of this temple are quite staggering. Uh, over 500 feet one way, like length of 500 feet, width about 300 feet, uh, 120 or so columns going up to about uh, 60 feet tall. In those days, columns were, were really uh, in, in favor. Okay. Lots of columns going up, reaching toward the sky. Okay. Uh, inside um, this temple area was a sacred chamber, and that sacred chamber went up toward the sky, and it, it outreached everything. It was 70, 80 feet high, and within this sacred chamber was a statue of this supposed goddess Name Artemis or Diana. Inside there, that statue had a halo over her, and she was revered. Revered. And then attached to the 
temple area was somewhat like a stadium that, that just uh, surrounded the temple area. And it would hold about 25,000 people. Okay. This is the major religion in Ephesus. Now, and it became not just a religion, but it became the place of social gathering. It became a place of a major place of economics. Okay. And then this temple was first built some 600 years before Christ. Okay. And so the people in Ephesus are rather uh, deeply rooted in this religion of Diana. Okay. So think about it, that enormous structure. And then think about how long that structure has been there. Think about the, the crowd. It would it'd be something like a football field uh, with all the seats around it. Okay, just for a temple, just for a worship center. Okay. And then the people were in it. Would you go by there and preach the gospel? Would you go into that city and preach the gospel? So that's the temple. But then think about the beliefs of the people. They, they believed heavily in this goddess uh, Artemis. They believed heavily. They believed that she uh, could control the stars, that she controlled the atmosphere, which in turn she controlled uh, some things on earth. They believed that she cared about their problems and predicaments in life, and that she's the one that helps them get through these problems. She, they really firmly believed that she was the goddess of fertility, that she had a special interest in, in women and their producing and their children. And they also believed that, that uh, Diana could, um, was the protector of the city, that uh, Diana protected Ephesus from danger, from disaster, from enemies abroad and within and so forth. They were deeply rooted in this religion. The worship of Diana consisted of a lot of burning of incense, a lot of burn and a lot of playing of the flutes, instruments. And then there was this other thing, these these um, well known in this area of the world in those days, from Ephesus over to Corinth and Rome and back was um, they would intersperse food and uh, sexual activity among the followers. And all this had its place, or had its um, activities of this sort uh, within these confi confounds of this temple. Okay, it was a huge place. All right. So let's go back now to Acts uh, 19 and notice how this riot is going to get started. There's a ringleader, always a ringleader in a riot, and his name is Demetrius. You'll notice him here in Acts 19 and 24. Let's do a little reading here in Acts 19, beginning in verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of, um, of Artemis. Okay. In other words, little bitty miniature idols. And you can imagine what a great business this is because these little miniature idols look just like Artemis, just like Diana. People wanted to buy them. People passing through. It's a seaport, you know, so they're traveling through and they want to buy 
these idols for their family, for their grandchildren. And so it's quite a bit of a, a business. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Then he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, now see, Demetrius, he is the, he's the union leader and he's gathering people together to talk about this. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and uh, turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are, are not gods. Okay, and there's also a danger that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great god, um, goddess Artemis, may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So notice how he talks about Paul here in verse uh, 26. He says, this Paul, this Paul, that's kind of a low-down way uh, referring to Paul. He don't mean this by, by, as a way of compliment here. This Paul. This Paul. You know, this Paul. And um, you want people to be talking about you this way. This is one of your goals. Okay? Jesus said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you when they revile you and they say all manner of evil against you. Okay? And so you want people to be talking about you because that means that we have taken the gospel and struck a nerve. Most of us prance around wanting people to think really nice things about us, but this is such contrast, it's such a dark contrast to how Paul moved about uh, with the gospel, you see. So this Paul, this Paul, this publican over here, this Paul, this Paul, it's all his fault, you see. This Paul says that our gods are not really gods. So Paul had gotten his message across, hadn't he? It's so very true. They heard what he said. This Paul saying our gods are not really gods. Well, Paul went everywhere talking like this. Look, look back in your Bible to Acts 17 as he was in Athens. Acts 17 and 29. Acts 17, 29. Paul speaking. He said, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. These are times of ignorance, Paul said. So this Paul, that's what Paul's saying. These gods of yours are not really gods. If you're going back to Acts 14, there he's in Lystra and Derby saying the same kind of thing. Acts 14, verse 15. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. Okay. So Paul went everywhere teaching that these idols are nothing, nothing. Other references there be 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. Also a great way of just kind of Noticing um, what God thinks of idols is Psalm 115. Psalm 115. The idols, you know, they don't have hands, they don't have legs, and kind of poking fun at idols in Psalm 115. Okay. 
But that's what Paul went everywhere. That's what we ought to do too, is to say, hey, these gods that you're serving are not really gods. They're not living, and you're really wasting your time in life on them. Okay. This Paul, this Paul says that our gods are not really gods. This Paul, he's the one that's taken away our trade, our treasure, and our temple. Okay. This Paul, this Paul. You see what Demetrius is trying to do. He's trying to, he's got his workmen together and he's speaking to a lot of people. He's trying to get an uproar going. He's going to succeed at this. Okay. This Paul, if you notice in Acts um, 19 and verse uh, 27, he said, This Paul is not only doing trouble here in Ephesus, but hey, all of Asia and the whole world worships Artemis also. And so he's not only causing trouble here, but he's causing trouble for a lot of people in the world. So in other words, this Paul has got to go. This Paul. This Paul has got to be stopped. This Paul must be disposed of. Okay. And so he's able to get an uproar going. Now the next paragraph here from verses uh, 28 down through 34 or so, 34 and 35, is the riot. And we're going to be able to see here uh, some characteristics of any riot. Okay. And we can't help but think back in our own country and how ashamed we were uh, back in 2020, and maybe some in 21, of how uh, our own people, our own people, our own countrymen um, uh, reduced themselves to this type of behavior. But notice in verse uh, 28, it says, when they heard this, they were enraged. And so that's one characteristic of a, of a riot is emotionalism. They were enraged. The word enraged here in verse 28 comes from uh, the Greek word thermos, which, from which we get our um, word for thermoses, things that, that get hot and stay hot in a thermos. Okay. This is what this word means. They got hot and they stayed hot. That's, that's what the word uh, Enraged means here in verse 28. They got hot and they stayed hot. Okay, and also notice that they were shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So emotionalism and shouting taking place. Notice down in verse uh, 34, it says, um, For two hours they shouted. They, two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So you got emotionalism, you got the, the shouting. And then notice verse uh, 20, 29, the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Now those were two faithful companions of Paul, two faithful co-workers of Paul. So they drugged them. What are they going to do with them? Well, they're getting ready to do some harm uh, to them. Okay, so you have a violent crowd. Now, this was such a violent situation. Notice what is said here in verse 30. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd. Now, isn't that just like Paul? Paul wants to get in there and mix, mix, mix it up. He's not going to go in there and fight. He wants to go in there and try to, to help the people, teach them. He wants to be in the midst of them, try to bring, bring them to some reasonable conclusion about 
uh, their religion. Okay? He wants an opportunity. But it says, when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples just would not let him go. And even some of the Asiarchs, whoever they are, uh, who were friends of his, sent to him and urged him not to venture into the theater. So that's just how bad uh, it was. Okay? And so not only was there violence, but notice in verse Notice in verse 32, there was a lot of confusion. Okay. Some cried out one thing, some cried out something else. The assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. That is a riot. That is what you... That, isn't it interesting how people can get stirred up into a frenzy, almost a pandemonium, and don't even know why they're out there? But that's what Demetrius and his friends uh, were doing. So this uh, Jewish person by the name of Alexander, verse 33, he tries to calm down the crowd, but that didn't work either. They just shouted even louder for two more hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay. Then verse 35, finally the town clerk was able to quieten the crowd. Notice what he says. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of, of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? Now notice this. The ESV says it like this, is great temple keeper of the Artemis and also of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. That's also another characteristic of, of riots is some kind of foolish uh, belief attached to all this. Can you believe that? That these people who get up and put on their clothes every day and are able to go out and make money Okay, lots of it, would believe something about a sacred stone falling from the sky. Okay. But this is part and partial of the kind of riot that has uh, taken place here in Ephesus. Right. Now, let's see if we can stop right here and learn some lessons that will be of benefit to all of us. When I think about the temple... Lesson number one, I think about Ephesians 2. Turn your Bibles, please. Ephesians 2, and notice how that Paul, writing to the Ephesians later, later, Paul, after this experience, okay, probably about a year later, he sits down and writes the letter to the Christians in Ephesus. Okay. And notice what he says in Ephesians 2 and 21. He refers to the church... As a holy temple, notice that, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul describes the church. In other words, Paul is saying, you have in your past, you have been associated, many of you, with the temple of Diana. I want you to know that there is one true temple, the church of our Lord. If you read down from Ephesians 2, 13 and following, you see that those who comprise this uh, temple, the church, are those who have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, uh, verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, Ephesians 2, 16. And so these are the ones uh, who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. These are the ones, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, these 
The ones in the temple are those who have been saved by grace through faith. Okay. And so this is the temple of the Lord. It's a great lesson. Look over to 1 Corinthians 3 also, please, right quick. 1 Corinthians uh, 3. Notice Paul's describing the church there. He says, um, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Read that again. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You see that? Those of the way are the temple, the true temple, the only temple of God. And it's interesting that if you go back to 1 Corinthians 3, you know, 6 and 7, Paul said, I planted Apollos watered and God gave the increase. This is how the temple gets uh, compiled. This is how the, the temple comes together to be the temple. We're not talking about a physical temple here. We're talking about people safe from their sins and coming together with a mutual faith and to follow Christ in their lives. And so that's, Paul leads up to the temple there in 1 Corinthians 3. Isn't it interesting? And so first of all, think about the church. It's a great lesson. It's great to recall about how important God's church is. But not just that the church is important, but the church ought to be holy. That's the second lesson. Okay. You are built up as a holy temple. Holy temple. And this, is, this is emphasized quite a bit in Ephesians. Holy temple. We understand Peter wrote one time, 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15, I guess, Be ye holy as I am holy. I spoken to the church. We're expected to be holy. Holy. Okay. Um, let's see. You know, James uh, chapter 1 talks about pure religion and undefiled. Notice that. Pure religion. That's the kind of religion that's expected of us. Pure religion and undefiled religion. Okay. What is pure religion? Well, it's one thing is to keep himself unspotted from the world. According to James 1.27. Well, look back in your Bibles to Ephesians. Ephesians. As we think about Ephesians 2.21 says we are a holy temple. But then also, just because you want to see this, Ephesians 5.27, talking about the church. Ephesians 5.26 talks about how we have been cleansed with the washing of water and the word. That's what makes us part of the church. And notice verse 27 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, notice this, without what? Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and without what? Blemish. Do you think God has high expectations of us or what? You know, we are to be holy. Without spot. Well, what are some of those spots? What are some of the spots that end up being on the church when they're not supposed to be there? What are some of those spots? Certainly, 
anything related to the worship of Diana would be a spot. It would be very difficult for a lot of those folks to leave that past life behind and come to the true God, the true temple. Anything like apathy, anything like gossip, anything like immoral living, anything like filthy talking, anything like false teaching, you can just name them all yourself. All of this would be spots on the church. We are to cleanse ourselves. We wash with the blood of Jesus, and we are to keep ourselves holy for, uh, for God. Weather's getting warmer and the clothes come off. That is a spot on the church okay, that we ought to turn way away from. It's a holy temple, holy temple. And if you look right there in your Bibles, Ephesians 5, and just let your eyes come forth from Ephesians 5, verse 3. We don't even have to read it. You can just glance at it. Sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness, all kinds of foolish talk. Just let your eyes keep reading. He wants all of that. God wants all of that out of our lives. We are the holy temple. You see that? Look at Ephesians 4, uh, 17. He says, I testify unto you in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in them due to their hardness of heart. Okay. You don't want you to, to be in that frame of mind anymore. You have put all that away. He was reminding them of that. We need to be reminded of that as well. Church is the temple of God. The church is the holy temple of God. When we say temple, we, we think about worship, and we ought to think about worship. And God has a special concern about keeping worship pure and undefiled. And if we had time, we would, we would notice Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. It's a great paragraph about, about the type of worship God uh, wants. A third lesson would be um, how the idolatry is still the greatest sin known to mankind. It's still the greatest sin. I believe that. What do you think? I mean, if somebody asks me what do you think the greatest sin is, it's idolatry. It still is. Idolatry comes in so many different forms. That's why it's the greatest uh, sin. You don't have to have a piece of wood or a stone to be, to be an idolater. Ezekiel 14.4 talks about idols being in our heart. Okay. One of the great ways of becoming of idolater is to be misinformed about God. You see. Romans 8.29. Is, is it Romans 8.29? I think it's Romans 8.29. It says one of God's goals for us is that we be conformed to the image of His Son. That we be conformed to the image of God's Son. In other words, to become more like Him, walk in His steps more and more and more. But instead, what we do is we, we make God in our own image. <coughs> because of the ignorance that's in us, we begin to make God in our own image. We begin to say, well, my God is like this. And it usually goes toward extremes. You know, usually uh, people want a God that's all cuddly, 
and that will just simply anoint or endorse all the things that you want to be and do and just simply be able to say, God's okay with that. Or they go to the other extreme and say, well, my God is so strict and so authoritative that he allows me to try to control other people. Okay. Why can't we just take all of what God is? Why can't we just take God as he is? It's interesting that in Acts 20, Paul again and again says, I taught unto you the whole, whole counsel of God. I didn't, I didn't hold anything back. Okay. If we hold something back, we end up becoming idolaters. We can't fit God in a little box. That's the whole idea about idolatry. They, an idol worshiper will create his idol from his own hands, and then he'll stick his idol in a, in a house or in a chamber. Okay. You can't put God in a house. That's, a, that's what got Stephen stoned. The God that made the heavens and the earth does not dwell in man's, man's houses. You can't put God in a house. What kind of house would you build, God? Impossible it is. So if we have the, if we, if we draw up short in our image of God, our thoughts about God, then we end up worshiping a God that's not known in the Bible. Why it's so important to, to be in the scriptures. Idolatry is still uh, the greatest sin ever. I think it always will be. Of course, one great lesson here that you're seeing again and again is the impact of the gospel. Would you go with the gospel into such a place? You think about how big that, that stadium is. You think about how deeply rooted and, and ancient that religion uh, was. You think about um, all the people making all that money off of this uh, religion. You, you, it's well known. People not just in Ephesus, but all Asia knows about this. Would you, but there goes Paul into that city to plant a church, to, to sow the seed of the kingdom. Would you do that? I mean, would, you, would you leave your home and go in that sort of situation? And not only did he go, but he stayed there three years going into the synagogue, and then he had an opportunity. Did he know about that? Did he know? When he went into Ephesus, did he know that the school of Tyrannus would be opened up to him? He didn't know. He didn't have a clue what he was going to do. But God in his goodness opened up some doors uh, for him. And it had an impact because Demetrius would not be concerned otherwise, right? Demetrius would never have gotten up and called the union workers together and said, we, we may have some problems here. He never had to do that, but the gospel was, was creating some havoc among them. Notice, going back to Acts 19 right quick, you can just let your eyes glance down through verses 1 through uh, 20. But notice at the end there in verse 20, it says, Acts 19, 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's when we say, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Notice back up there in Acts uh, 19, verse 19, or 18 and 19, that many of those who were already believers came and were confessing their sins. Okay, so easy for, 
for even Christians to start going back to their old ways. And so they came and they started burning some of their books, started, started turning away from their practices. Okay. That's, the, that's the mighty impact of the Word of God. Okay. But it doesn't just happen. Okay. We don't just send money. Okay. We don't just send Bibles. Okay. You'll remember that it takes, uh, it takes personal effort and personal dedication. You'll remember over in Acts 20 that Paul is in Miletus and he calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus. At Ephesus. Okay. And I want you to notice what he says here in a couple of these verses. Verse 18. He said to them, He says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day until I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit has testified to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as anything precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. If you're not moved by those words, then I don't know where you're going to go. I mean, I don't know what you're going to do. I think you need to meet in a, you need to have a meeting with me with an open Bible immediately in a room because those are powerful words. What it takes is, what I'm saying is, it takes, it takes the, the impact of the gospel, but the gospel is not going to be impacted unless you have personal dedication uh, next to it. And you see that Paul was exactly the one to be there. So the lessons are uh, the temple of the Lord, the holy temple of the Lord, uh, the sin of idolatry and the impact of the gospel. If you get down to Acts 19, you see this town clerk who finally is able to, to calm the people down. Okay. Very interesting to me what he said. He said, all of you Ephesians know that we are the temple keeper of the great Artemis. Okay. All of you know that. Why are you so upset? Now, had Paul been there teaching? He had. Why wasn't this man a Christian? And why wasn't all these other union workers, why weren't they, why weren't they Christians? Was there something deficient in Paul's teaching of the gospel that this man is saying, hey, we're still the temple keepers of Artemis? Was there something deficient about Paul's teaching of the gospel? Why isn't Demetrius and why isn't this town clerk, why aren't they following Christ? Why aren't they following Christ? You know the answer. What is it? Some people receive and some people don't. That's the plain truth. It happened then, it happened then. Now some did turn to the gospel and that's why Demetrius is so upset. But many of them did not. There's nothing deficient about the teacher of the gospel or the gospel that was being taught is simply the fact that some will have a good and honest heart 
and say, yes, these are foolish things and we'll turn from them. Others uh, will not. The town clerk went on to say, he said, these men have not blasphemed Diana one little bit. I find that very interesting. Paul had taught against Diana, but this man did not feel offended by it. And the truth is, when you teach against something false, you're not showing disrespect to people. You're actually showing them the best sort of love that could be shown to them. And that's why Paul, Paul's in Ephesus out of love. He said in one place, the love of Christ constrains me. He was there because of love. And I think this town clerk, even though he was not ready to be a follower of Jesus, I think he, he could sense that, that these men were not here to, to do any disrespect to us. They're simply, they simply have their God and they're serving their God. Maybe he respected Paul's courage. Yeah. Yeah, Aaron Fletcher says that all the time. You've got to be willing to take a beating for Christ. You're so right about his courage. And that may be very well why he had such respect for, for these men. All right, so one of the riots in the Bible, Acts 19, much to learn from it. And uh, we may look at another one or two uh, as time moves along. Appreciate you being in class uh, this evening. Hope your week uh, goes really well.